Amen. You may be seated. His name was Gene, Gene Harrington. Gene was an elder on, on my very first session, the session at my former congregation in Albemarle. I started serving there at the Westminster, at that time, mission during my senior year in seminary. And while it was a mission, a mission congregation, I had the privilege of working alongside of Gene. Gene was a, a member of, the, of that congregation, but he also served on the provisional session. And then when I graduated, I uh, took the call to become the mission developer, the church planner there. And Gene was again in the congregation, and he was on that provisional session. And he was there from the get-go. And then as we were drawing near time for the mission to become a self-supporting congregation, I took a group of potential elders away for an elder retreat. Uh, I took this group away to hopefully prepare them for the possibility of serving as the very first session, uh, full session of the congregation. Now by that time I had grown to love Gene. He's, he, was a, he was a gentleman that was so hard not to love. He was just full of laughter and joy. He was a loyal man. He was a loving man. I knew a lot about him by this time. But there were two things I didn't know about Gene before this retreat, but I would soon find them out. On the way to my parents' cabin in Tennessee, uh, our, our carload of potential elders and this uh, young minister, we all stopped for dinner in Asheville. And it was one of those aggravating times when you pull off and you ask people where they want to eat and nobody will tell you. I mean, we passed at, uh, by fast food place after fast food place, and nobody was saying. And then finally I see this Chinese restaurant, and the parking lot was just full. And I thought, well, wow, that's a good sign. It's probably a decent restaurant. I said, is Chinese okay? In somewhat aggravated tone. And a couple of the brothers said yes, and so we pull in. A couple of the brothers said yes. Gene didn't say a word. I should have paid attention. Uh, after, after we pulled in, I found out that Gene hated Chinese food. Well, let me, let me rephrase that. Gene hated any food that was not prepared by his beloved uh, Betty Lou. If Betty Lou prepared it, he loved it. If she didn't, it wasn't any good. He didn't want it. He didn't like Chinese. But one of the other things that I learned about Gene was uh, he also had trouble waiting. We pulled in, and if the parking lot's full, you know it's a good crowd, and we were put on the wait list. Nothing to Lee. He was used to being on wait lists. We were going to be on a wait list of 20 to 30 minutes. Nothing. And I started looking around, and Gene was just fidgeting, and he was growing more aggravated, and he was like a cat on a hot tin roof. And I thought, what in the world is the matter with this guy? And finally, we went and took our seats. He was beside himself. He couldn't fathom having to wait. He was jittery. He was agitated. I was learning more about Gene. Gene hated Chinese food, and Gene hated waiting. Well, when I got back to Albemarle, I shared that story with his uh, grown sons, and they just howled with laughter. They just, they just said, oh, we wish we had been there to say pop at a Chinese restaurant, having to wait to eat.
Waiting is difficult. It's not just a problem for Gene, or it wasn't just a problem for Gene. My suspicion is we all have had or may be having a problem right now waiting. When our governor, Governor Cooper, announced on Friday afternoon that the state will need to make progress, as he said, in testing trends and increasing the number of healthcare workers before the COVID-19 restrictions can start to be lifted. When he said that, if you heard it or if you read it afterwards, I suspect if you didn't say it in anger, you probably said it in, despondently, in despondency. How much longer? How much longer must we wait? Waiting is difficult. Waiting reminds us that we aren't fully in control. If we were ever in control in the least, we aren't in full control. Today I want to take us to another psalm. We've already looked at Psalm, 130, uh, uh, psalm 91. I want to take us today to Psalm 130. Psalm 130 is a, is a psalm that I think helps those of us who find ourselves having a hard time waiting. Give your attention to the reading of the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. Like Psalm 91, Psalm 130 it's a dearly loved psalm and has been dearly loved down through the centuries of the church. It's been dearly loved by so many saints through the ages. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was a favorite psalm of John Bunyan, particularly when Bunyan found himself imprisoned for his faith, jailed for his faith. Bunyan loved it. Luther loved it. Luther called this psalm the Pauline psalm because it speaks of God's grace for sinners, unmerited, unearned grace and mercy. Bunyan loved it. Luther loved it. Another man in church history loved it as well. His name was John Wesley. Many know John Wesley's conversion story. Many know that on one evening he found himself in a nonconformist chapel. And there in that nonconformist chapel, in the meeting of those uh, brothers and sisters way back then, he heard someone read from the introduction to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And, and, and Wesley would go on to tell us that while he heard that introduction about the glories of God's sovereign grace and salvation, that his heart was what? Strangely 
warmed. Many people know that account, but what they so many don't know is what Luther had done before going to the nonconformist chapel. Uh, excuse me, Wesley. Wesley, before going to the nonconformist chapel, in the afternoon of that same day, late in the afternoon, he had gone to St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He had gone for the Vesper service. And in the Vesper service, guess what they sang? Psalm 130. And as they sang it, Wesley's heart began to be moved. The Lord God Almighty was using the singing of this psalm to begin that heart work in John Wesley that would end up in his conversion. The psalm begins, as it were, in the depths of the storms of depression. And then through four stanzas, it rises to the height of confident hope a hope that's so confident in the God of salvation that he's proclaiming it and commanding others to have such a hope. And it's such a hope that I need. It's a, such a hope that you need. And we need it ever more so today. So let's work our way through these stanzas. Let's work our way through these verses of this ancient song. Let's work our way through stanzas that go from, from uh, crying out for deliverance from sin to trusting that there is forgiveness for sin to waiting then in faith upon the God of forgiveness and salvation and redemption to then calling for Israel to place his hope, its hope in the Lord. Crying, trusting, waiting and calling. Let's think about the crying. Verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Have you ever felt yourself in a panic in, in maybe some deep water and you felt like you were going to drown and you're struggling, and you cry out for help. That's the sort of language the psalmist is employing here. It's like he's sinking further and further and further down into a mad ocean, and his are the cries of a drowning man. But why is he drowning? What's going on? What is he pleading for? Is he pleading from, for deliverance from an external force? Is he, is he pleading because uh, physical enemies of God are attacking? No, I think it's something else. He's pleading. He's pleading for what? Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Mercy. For not receiving what he deserved. He's pleading unto God, please be merciful to me. His are the cries of a drowning man, yes, but his are, the, his are the cries of a man who is drowning in his sins and the effects that his sins have. He's crying out, as the Puritan John Owen put it, under the weight and waves of his sin. Dear ones, he's aware, isn't he? He's aware of his sin. And that's so critically important. Why? Because he 
becoming aware of his sin, he, he cries out for rescue. He's aware that he's in trouble. He's aware that he's drowning. He's aware of the waves. And he's crying out. He's crying out unto the Lord. His suffering, you see, had awakened him to his sin. And by grace, the psalmist cries out to the God of grace. I wonder, brothers, I wonder, brothers and sisters, what... What is our present local and state and national and international? What is, what is our present suffering, state of suffering? What's it doing for us? Is it hardening us? Is it hardening you towards other people? Is it hardening you or us to, to our own, own sins? Or, or is it, by grace, actually revealing our sin for us to see, for us to sense, for us to feel. Is it revealing our idols? Jennifer Phillips, writing in a wonderful article for Christian Moms, she wrote something very astute, very, very simple, but astute. This is what she wrote. Idols are things that rattle us when they are threatened. Idols are things that rattle us when they are threatened. Is our security being rattled? Is our, our desire for control being rattled? Is our desire for just all manner of liberty being rattled? What's, what's being rattled in us? What's being revealed in our time of suffering? And do we see it? Do we understand? May the Lord give us eyes to see our sin mercifully that we might cry out to the God of mercy and the God of grace. Convicted believers cry out unto God. They recognize He's the only one who can save them. Oh, that our governors and our leaders would acknowledge this. Yes, the Lord may use people. Yes, the Lord may use us being diligent. He may use government. He may use medical workers. He may use all sorts of people to bring a measure of relief in our country and throughout the world. But guess who's using them? God is. Sola Dea Gloria. To God alone be the glory. That's the first stanza. But where does it lead him? leads him to confession not only of his own personal sin, but of the universal nature of sinfulness and the universal nature need for mercy. And then it leads him where? To what? leads him to a trust that there is mercy. It leads him to the trust and belief and a faith that there is forgiveness. Crying leads to trusting. Verse 3. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should write them down and mark them and pay attention, O oh Lord, who could stand? None of us. None of us. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Think about that drowning man again, crying out for help. 
And someone tosses him that, that life ring. What does he do? He grabs a hold of it. He holds on to it. He entrusts himself to it. That's what the psalmist is doing. With you there is forgiveness. Not there may be forgiveness. I hope there's forgiveness. No, there is forgiveness. And notice the forgiveness isn't qualified. There's no qualifications put on it. The psalmist doesn't say, With you, O Lord, there is forgiveness for these sins, but not these. The psalmist says, With you there is forgiveness. Point blank. All of our sins. All of our sins. With Him there is forgiveness, and that forgiveness is all-inclusive. And it's not just a forgiveness. It's it, it, because the word forgiveness here is, is definite. It's, we might could translate it this way. It's the forgiveness. And for us on this side of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the empty tomb, we know that the forgiveness is that forgiveness that's been earned for God's people through the life and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The forgiveness here is the forgiveness that is the gift of our Savior for us. And it's even more powerful. Literally, we could translate the first half of verse 4 with, with you, forgiveness. Or with you, the forgiveness. Decisive, full, now, and forevermore. Forevermore. Such amazing grace. Such marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Such amazing grace for those who seek it. For those who cry out for it. For those who ask for forgiveness. For those who are convicted of their sin and confess their sins unto the Lord, crying out and trusting in Him. But now notice the interesting turn in verse 4, second part. Where does this, this trust lead the psalmist, maybe we would think, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be loved. No. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Feared. Forgiveness for the child of God should never lead us to license. It should never lead us to think like this, oh God will forgive me so I'll just sin some more. No. The child of God who tastes forgiveness should be led not to license, but should be led to acknowledging the lordship of his Savior or her Savior and reverential awe for such a sovereign, powerful, wise God who nevertheless saves, forgives. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. A reverential awe. Awe of God who in His holiness, power, and righteousness yet says to the storm, Peace, be still. Who says to those fearful disciples in the upper room, Peace be unto you. Who will rescue us from the angry sea 
and cast our sin back into it as He saves us. Do you have such a reverential fear? I hope so. I hope so. Because as Spurgeon once said, he who fears God has nothing else to fear. He who fears God, who has this reverential awe for the sovereign, powerful, holy, righteous God who's gracious and merciful and loving. He who has such a fear for such a God has nothing else, nothing else to fear. The fear of God can drive out the fear of the coronavirus. The fear of God can drive out the fear of tyrannical human governments. The fear of God can drive out the fear of being destitute. The fear of God can drive out the fear of the demonic. Such fear, such reverential awe, such humble amazement before the God of salvation, brothers and sisters, is a glorious blessing and gift. That stands a two. How about stanza three? From crying to trusting to waiting. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. If you believe, if you trust that God will forgive you, that He will rescue you, that He will save you, if you've already begun to experience that salvation, if you've tasted of that forgiveness, then you will do what? You will wait upon the Lord. You'll wait for the rest of this glorious salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will wait for Him, for sweeter and more intimate communion with Him. You will wait the coming of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ a second time to set all things right and to establish a glorious new heavens and new earth. But waiting, brothers and sisters, is hard. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. We all know it's hard, but I, I wonder why. Why, dear ones? Why, when we know, if we're believers, we know that God knows best? Why is it so hard to wait when we know, don't we, that our God is sovereign? He's in complete control of this timeline. Why is it so hard to wait when we know, brothers and sisters, that He has purposes in the dark night in which we face and those purposes are ultimately good? Why do we have such a hard time waiting when, as, as John Piper has said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. 10,000 things and glorious things. And you are just aware of just, just a pittance. The night may be dark. The night may be long. But the morning is coming. 
remember a time when I was an engineering student, an engineering co-op student. I went to Georgia Tech and I co-opted with Georgia Power during those days. I co-opted at a coal-fired plant known as Plant Wansley in western Georgia. Well, uh, this particular quarter I was working in the engineering department and one of our engineers, he had a test that needed to be run. And that test needed to be uh, done all through the night. And so guess who got the job assignment to do the testing? The co-op students. And me and my friend, my fellow engineering co-op student, began our task at about 8 o'clock that night. We went up to about to, uh, I can't remember the exact floor in the plant, uh, but you, you had to go up in the plant in the elevator, go outside the building, and stand on ductwork. The ductwork was massive, the size, the width of our pews. And that ductwork was about five stories off the ground. And we had to start taking those tests at 8 p.m., take the measurements with our gloves and our sensor, standing way up off the ground, running the sensor down into that ductwork, taking our measurements every 15, 30 minutes, another 45 minutes, an hour. That was the longest night I have ever experienced. But brothers and sisters, do you know what happened about 6 o'clock in the morning? The light began to overcome the darkness. The morning is coming. The night might seem internally long, but guess what, dear ones? The morning is coming. And a watchman knows this. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. Crying, trusting, waiting, and finally calling, proclaiming, maybe even commanding. Verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The psalmist had experienced personal forgiveness. He had, he had been enabled by grace to trust in the Lord, and he was enabled by grace to wait upon the Lord. And as he does so, what does he do? He shares what he knows. He shares the good news. He shares to Israel, to his brothers and sisters, that there is hope in the Lord. There is steadfast fast love in the Lord. There is plentiful, plenteous, as the old King James puts it, redemption. He shares with Israel that God will redeem Israel. He shares the gospel. And so do I. Lee, by sovereign grace, has been brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know there is forgiveness for my sins in Christ. Because I know that Jesus lived a perfect life in my place, doing everything that I have failed to do, keeping God's law perfectly in my place. And I know that Jesus Christ then went willingly to the cross to bear the penalty for all my terrible wickedness and darkness 
And I know that Jesus was buried in the tomb. And I know on the third day, Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. And He was risen. He arose for my salvation, for my forgiveness. And I know that in Jesus Christ there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. Brothers and sisters and those who may not be of the faith, place your faith and trust in this God of mercy, forgiveness, grace, and love. Matthew Henry wrote, there's plenteous redemption. There's an all-sufficient fullness of merit and grace in the Redeemer. Enough for all. Enough for each. Enough for me. Enough for you. Would you place your faith and trust in the Lord? May your hope be in the God of Israel. Let us pray. Lord, this work of hope and faith in our souls is impossible apart from the sovereign moving of your Spirit. O Holy Spirit, work faith in the hearts of all who hear that they may place their hope in the Lord. For in Jesus Christ is plentiful redemption and He forgives and He redeems Israel from all his iniquities. We pray this in his name. Amen.